Buford Hilton Head Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a very first-time listener, and if you are, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions as they've been studying God's Word. Maybe there's a challenge or an application to some issue in life that they're looking for help with. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number locally, 843-525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we will do our best to respond. You can also email us here directly into the studio. We get a lot of email questions, people like that electronic feel, and you can do so at TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at net, and it will come up here before us. So, Rick, uh, we've got a lot of questions. We were gone last week, but we're back today, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. Very good. Uh, Katie from Greenville writes, I'd like to implement the fasting more into my prayer life. I know we're expected to, but honestly, I've never seen it modeled or been taught too much about it. Can you give some examples of what it looks like? Can it be just one meal or a day or several days? Also, does it include liquid or no liquid? I'm sure all fasts look different, and we aren't really supposed to talk about them, but I really just want to be able to be effective and have a clearer understanding of the how instead of the why. Thank you for your ministry. Well, I appreciate the question. It comes uh, from time to time what fasting is all about let me let me for just first say it's not dieting and the reason i even bring this up is if you go into some christian bookstores they have fasting as a dieting strategy and i'm not just one to say that there's not some benefits uh, in terms of you know cutting back on the amount of food you're eating but that's not really the the purpose of it and for that matter neither is fasting what we would call a partial fast so some would take uh daniel uh, chapter 1 is their proof text where uh, the men there withheld certain kinds of food and they understand that as a biblical basis for a, a partial fast. That's certainly not is what is in view there. I think they're, refer- they're restraining themselves from alcohol as it was strong drink and they did not want to violate God's commands in reference to that. Neither did they want to uh, eat either meat sacrificed to idols, which would have been common in Babylon at that time, or for that matter, they did not want to eat outside of the kosher diet that God had prescribed for the Jewish people by which he distinguished them. So we're not talking about a partial fast uh, where we refrain just from certain kinds of food. Uh, That's somewhat somewhat of a misconception that has been popular in a number of books and unfortunately in some teaching, and it's certainly not a diet. 
there is basically two kinds of fasts that are presented. I've just turned to the book of Ezra, and uh, or excuse me, the book of Esther. And if you remember on that occasion, uh, Haman, an evil man, wanting to annihilate the Jews, uh, God got uh, the information that was necessary to Esther's, and uh, she was admonished, go and assemble all the Jews, she was told, who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days. So there's a fast that includes neither eating or drinking, but that's not typical. Uh, typically, fasting is modeled in Scripture, involve no food while drinking water. A good example of Christ in Luke 4, Matthew 4. Obviously, the human body can only go about a week, maybe 10 days without any kind of liquid, and then you die. Your body is 60% water. So, um, you know, you, you need water to function. And Christ fast would have included water. And he really pushed the very limit, even in his humanity, of going 40 days without food. Uh, that's really almost on the edge of supernatural. Uh, but with that said, it was a real fast, and he was in a real human body. And with God's help and grace, as he depended upon the Spirit of God, he was able to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. So why fast? Why fast at all? Well, it's certainly not to achieve some kind of righteous standing with God. It's not to impress him. It's not to get God's attention. Uh, The Bible says our righteousness is his filthy rags. Our righteous deeds are his filthy rags. Not our worst deeds, but our best deeds before an absolutely holy God is as filthy rags. And if you remember in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah 58, God said this, this is the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the, of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Uh, is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless uh, poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So here was a fasting that was taking place in Isaiah's day as if to impress God when uh, God was not against fasting, but he said, look, you're trying to portray a righteousness, but it's a false righteousness. You are letting the wicked go free. You're ignoring the basic needs of the homeless, the poor. Uh, in all under the name of you're a religious, righteous person by the fact that you fast. So again, uh, spirit, heart, attitude is everything. But the Bible does teach fasting. Jesus assumed this in the Sermon on the Mount. And I have a whole sermon on fasting uh, from, if you go to searchthescriptures.org, and you can get the phone app online, and a lot of people use the phone app, or you can listen to it on your computer But in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord Jesus, of course, is portraying the Pharisaical righteousness with true righteousness. And, of course, the key verse to the whole sermon is, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, When uh, we go to Israel, we always go to the Mount of Beatitudes, and it's a pretty Um, clear spot in terms of where it is. Now, whether we're standing on the exact spot that Jesus preached or we're off 100 yards, I don't know. But we know the approximate zone in which that sermon took place. And Jesus shows that unless their righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
that they really are not true believers because, again, the scribes and Pharisees had a false righteousness. And so he addresses three issues, fasting, giving, and prayer, and he shows how true believers are to fast, give, and to pray. And when speaking of fasting here in Matthew 6, he says, but when you fast, not if you fast, but whenever you fast, uh, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Um, you, you do it not to uh, parade yourself before men, but to humble yourself before God. So there's an assumption that we will fast. Now, it's interesting that there's not a definite uh, command to fast so that if you're not fasting, you're out of the will of God. And I think God gave an allowance that there are some people who have sicknesses in their body where they cannot literally fast. They have to, within a certain number of hours, take in some kind of physical food, sugar issues, all kinds of things. But the general assumption is that God's people will fast. Why do they fast in Scripture? Well, one is to humble ourselves. You see that in the book of Ezra, how they fasted and sought God earnestly and humbled themselves before God, and you see that very wording in the book of Ezra. Uh, It certainly has a way of intensifying your prayer life. Um, The Bible says when we are weak, he is strong. And in the physical weakness of fasting, there's a constant reminder to pray for a specific need. Um, There are many a time when I have a specific need in my life or a friend's life or a family member's life, and I will go to God in fasting uh, because in every time I feel that hunger pain, it's a reminder to pray more earnestly for that person. Uh, King David talked about how he humbled his soul with fasting. I think that was in Psalm 35. Um, so certainly it is a means in which we humble ourselves before God. We don't earn grace. Grace is unmerited. But just like the person who comes to Christ in salvation and they admit their bankruptcy and their need for grace, very often one way we can express our need for growing grace, because the Bible speaks not just of saving grace, but greater grace, and that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Uh, so when we fast, we are really in humility seeking the Lord. Uh, sometimes you see examples of fasting and finding God's will. Let me just turn here to the book of Acts. There's a couple passages that come to mind. One is in Acts chapter 13. Now there were at Antioch, <coughs> excuse me, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who's called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with uh, Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Just just that list tells a whole lot about the complexion of the church. I have a whole sermon just on that, because unfortunately we have adopted a Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, a seeker-sensitive target uh, audience church mentality, which is less than true and not even close to being biblical. The church in the uh, New Testament included rich, poor, slaves, free, uh, various races, Jew, Gentile, and so forth. And this is evident as you read Acts 13. And while they're ministering to the Lord, the Bible says, and fasting, here's the leadership in the church, they're fasting. It was in that context that the Holy Spirit led them to set apart Barnabas and Saul, later, of course, also called the Apostle Paul, for the work which I have called them. So sometimes we 
need to find God's direction in life, and we have a big decision. I, I've never made that I can remember a major decision for the church I pastor without going to God in prayer and in fasting. It should be a part of every leader's, um, you know, seeking God for, for direction. And, of course, you find another example just in the next chapter, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. Now, the way it's structured in the Greek New Testament is they prayed and fasted, and from that they appointed elders for every church. Uh, so elders, of course, are pastors, bishops, elder, pastor, used interchangeably in the Bible of the same office. And they needed leaders, pastors, qualified godly men who would serve in these different churches. And they sought God in prayer and fasting, and it was in that context that they found the direction that they needed. So one purpose of fasting is to find God's specific will for your life. There's this general will that is true of every believer, but then there is his specific will. In God's general will, every church should have elders and deacons. But in God's specific will, which men should be elders? Which men should be deacons? Um, Sometimes fasting is done as a means of repentance, where there's a real sincerity in the human heart that you want to break from the sin that you've been engaged in. Uh, you see Nehemiah. I preached the book of Nehemiah. It's been like 15 years. I should probably preach it again sometime. Uh, but in Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, Nehemiah calls the pe- people in repentance to uh, to fast and to pray. Uh, there's even an example of repentant kind of fasting amongst unbelievers in Jonah chapter 3. Remember Jonah, who is the uh, preaching prophet who... Um, you know, goes to Nineveh, a city he doesn't want to go to. It'd be like asking this morning a Ukrainian to go preach to the Russian people because right now there's a lot of hostility between those two cultures. You'd say, you you want me to go to preach God in Crimea? You know, the, the, those people don't like us, and they, they just, uh, you know, attack the, a couple of our ships. And, yeah, that's what I want you to do. Um, and so Jonah, being the patriot that he is, uh, is called of God, but he's a prodigal prophet. And God, of course, swallows him uh, with a great fish, and he becomes the praying prophet. He's spit out, and then he becomes the preaching prophet. And in the end, he's the pouting prophet. But he recovers because he wrote the book of Jonah. In either case, um, the people that he finds in Nineveh are praying and fasting. I mean, they even get the animals to pray and fast, so to speak. They put sackcloth and ash on the animals. And the greatest revival possibly, other than the revival that will happen during the Great Tribulation, the greatest revival that's recorded in anywhere in all the Bible, with the exception of those vast multitudes from every tongue, tribe, and nation that are saved after the rapture of the church, during the tribulation period, the greatest revival in human history takes place. And so the Ninevites repent. Now, what's unfortunate, you read the book of Nahum, it's written about 100 years later, and the next generation repents of their parents' repentance, and they become wicked in their their sin. And then certainly fasting is done, as I mentioned earlier in the book of Esther, the fourth chapter, when they need God's help in an impossible situation. And many of the pastors during the time of Winston Churchill, when uh, the German troops were approaching uh, England, they certainly put feet to their 
prayers and that great rescue mission with all the boats and crafts that they could find. But they also prayed and they fasted and they asked for God's divine sovereign intervention that only he could bring and God answered their prayer. So many reasons for fasting uh, to get down to the specificity of your question, do I fast a meal, a day? That's between you and God. But usually there's a meal that's involved. Sometimes people do a 24-hour fast and they'll they'll eat at breakfast and then they won't eat until breakfast the next day. We call it breakfast because we have, so to speak, had a break in eating between the time we went to bed and the time we woke up. And so we have the word breakfast or breakfast. Um, But oftentimes people will skip a meal, maybe a lunch hour. There's a concern they have in their marriage with the child, with their church, in their ministry, with a decision that they need to make, and they need the wisdom of God. And the time that it would take you to drive to McDonald's or to prepare a meal or to clean up even after the meal, you could spend that time in prayer. And then that afternoon, as you feel that little hunger pain twitching in your stomach, You can use it as a reminder to take that need to God. And God honors that. So there's great power in prayer and in fasting. Anyway, good question. I appreciate you asking it. I think we've had a live caller that's waiting patiently, so let's go there. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yeah, good morning. Yes, thanks for calling today. How can we be of help? The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes. Now, some people think, just because it says that, 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 like the Bible says, that God's Word never changes. So, like if we read 1 Kings 18, verse 40, where it said uh, Elijah got all the prophets of Baal, and he had them decapitated, or the Spanish translation says they decapitated or cut their throats. Yes. So the word of God is the same yesterday and forever. If it says we are today false prophets today, are we, are we allowed to do the same thing today to false prophets and false teachers? Because the uh, was referred to Christ say I'm the same yesterday and for, forever. It refers to his nature and his character or just referred to his word? Well, it, it's a great question you're asking, and obviously it's a verse that you know is being used out of context by many. And they selectively use it out of context. They wouldn't implement the example you just gave, uh, but they might want to implement it in terms of saying, well, I'm a prophet of God because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or, you know, the early church spoke in tongues, and so I can speak in tongues. Or the early church, you know, had healers, and so God's called me to a healing ministry because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But remember, of course, that verse is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and verse 8. And if you just think about the context of the book of Hebrews, in many ways, it would answer a lot of the false dogma that comes from uh, taking this verse out of context. If you remember, these are Hebrew Christians. These are Jewish Christians. That's not an oxymoron, because the word Hebrew speaks to a race of people. So these were Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, who had come to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And they were, many of them, to escape persecution, they were going back, and outwardly they were acting Jewish. And they might have even tried to have built a case for it through Paul, maybe, who took a Nazarite vow, or any number of texts that they could have used or misused out of context. And what they were doing is they were continuing in the sacrificial system. What did that do for them? Well, 
It meant that you still look Jewish, walk Jewish, talk Jewish, and therefore we're going to continue to bless you as a Jew. But if you believe in Jesus and you say, oh, the temple worship is over because Jesus is the uh, head of the church, is the Messiah of Israel, fulfilled all the old covenant practices such that we no longer need to be engaged in sacrificial worship, then that would mean persecution. It would mean your business is being boycotted. Now, of course, he mentions in this chapter that some of them, though they were persecuted, hadn't shed their blood as others had done. But nonetheless, he's saying, look, we're under a different kind of sacrificial system. Let us continually offer up not a sacrifice of an animal because the blood of bulls and goats only prefigured the blood of Christ, but let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So I say all that to say that if someone just reflected on the verse itself found in the book of Hebrews, if they're going to be consistent to say, well, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then why is he telling us no longer to be engaged in the animal sacrificial system? So you're right, God never changes, but God's nature is eternal. We call that the immutability of God. There's a 50-cent theological term. just means that God never changes. He is always the same. God is immutable. I, the Lord God, do not change, the Bible says. But the way he deals with his people at different times in human history does change. So there was a time when God said that the people of God on the seventh day of the week should worship, but now... The Lord, who never changes, has dictated that we meet on the first day of the week. Uh, Under the Old Covenant, there were certain dietary laws that the Jewish people uh, upheld in which they distinguished themselves through those externals. But now that we are members of a greater covenant, the New Covenant, where the Spirit of God lives in us, God now distinguishes us not so much externally but internally through the presence of the Holy Spirit who produces external results through a changed life. So again, Scripture must interpret Scripture. Every text has a context, and if you take a Bible verse out of its context, if you pretext it, then you can really distort the meaning of a verse in its application for today. That's a fantastic question. I appreciate you asking it. Uh, Let's go on to the next question, Rick. They're piling up here. All right. We've got an anonymous question. Uh, This person wants to know about tithing. She says, my husband and I got into a heated discussion about the giving to the church. When we lived in Beaufort, I wanted to give to the church. My husband was against it. In regards to my question, does the Lord want you to give even when you are in debt? My husband says no, that he thinks you get your finances in order before you give. Well, for a lot of American Christians, for them to get their finances in order means you start tithing, because very often many of the financial problems that we are experiencing is because we've robbed God, and two, we've adopted the world's financial system instead of God's financial system. So if God gives you $50,000 to live on this year and you spend sixty because you put an extra $10,000 on your credit card, I just read two days ago that 28% of Americans have not paid off last year's Christmas. 28% of Americans have not paid off last year's Christmas. You can Google it. You can read the whole article if it's of interest to you. That's sad. 
What are people doing? What's the average American family doing? They're spending money they don't have. And so Christmas will come and they'll put, you know, things on the credit card. Nothing wrong with using a credit card. I use them all the time for convenience. But I don't use them to spend money I don't have. And so it's very important that we learn the biblical theology of money. I have a whole course on it, and God willing, I'm planning to teach that course again. I have it scheduled to be retaught in uh, 2019, and it's basically what the Bible says about money, and we deal with the issue of stewardship. And it starts with the fact that we recognize that we're stewards, that it's really not our money, it's God's money. And I know the word tithe is a mathematical term. It means 10%. But understand that we will give an account for all 100% of what we use. Now, that doesn't mean you have to feel guilty about, you know, spending your money on something you would enjoy. God's given us all things to enjoy. So you don't need to make an excuse for something if God gave it to you. But with that said, we give an account for everything that we spend. And so we look at the issue of stewardship, what the Bible says about giving, saving, debt, uh, investing, and then what the Scripture teaches about planning. Maybe the modern-day world word would be budgeting and how you reflect those biblical principles. Now, unfortunately, some people sometimes present tithing as a magic bullet, that if I just tithe, that I am automatically going to be blessed of God. Well, look, if I tithe and I don't save, there's a biblical principle in saving. Learn a lesson from the ant in the time of plenty. And he's talking about Israeli ants. And ants are different. You know, we have uh, Latin American ants now. We call them fire ants. They were never here 40 years ago, but they came through tires that were shipped from South America uh, into the United States of America. And we got a little vicious ant that bites and leaves a little pain sometimes on your skin. Uh, that's one kind of ant. Well, there's Israeli ants, and they are different from some American ants. So, again, context is everything. And so the Israeli ants, that, that which is native to that part of the world, in time of plenty they save so that in time when it's dry and there's no food ready, they can go into their storage um, closet, so to speak, and get the food that they need to take care of one another. Well, that's a biblical principle that's found in Proverbs chapter 6 that we are to exercise in terms of saving. So, again, if the transmission breaks in the car and I, you know, it cost me $2,100 to fix it and I don't have $2,100 in the bank to cover it, then there may be a real serious stewardship issue there that I'm not following and listening to. So I would say to you as a wife, number one, your husband is your head, and you can encourage him, but you also are called to submit to his leadership. That doesn't mean that you're silent. You are his helper, and if he is a believer, then you want to come alongside and encourage him and maybe take my course, and you don't have to pay for it either. Uh, You know, I don't make any money off of tapes or courses or things like that. Uh, Now, it is true that sometimes people will pay for a DVD, and that's to buy airtime on the different stations that we're in in different parts of the country. Because most stations cost about ten dollars to $15,000 a year to broadcast on. But I don't make any money. And very often the people who need to take my financial course, they don't have a, a, a loose dime, so to speak. 
But I do believe that if you wait until you get out of debt, you'll never get out of debt. And what I have discovered over the years is that people who learn the biblical principle of tithing in conjunction with what God says on other areas, they just become better stewards of all that they have. And sometimes when they think it's absolutely impossible to do and obey God, they begin to see their financial ship turned around and God begins to honor their obedience. So I would say to this wife, you can't make your husband tithe as the head of the home. But if he says, honey, here's $20, just do whatever you want with it. Then you can give a tithe of $2 from that. That's money he put in your hand. It's under your control. And you can tithe off of that. You say, that seems so oppressive. Well, you know, there are some husbands who are oppressive. And that's sad. In First Peter 3, 1 through 8 would give you some wise counsel on how to turn around a disobedient husband. But that's another message. But still, you can obey God and you can encourage your husband to obey God. And maybe if you turn off the TV as a couple and you take my course on the biblical theology of money, that your husband would begin to have his mind renewed and he would begin to obey God. Otherwise, what will happen is you'll probably go through your whole married life with troubles. Listen, I meet couples every time I teach that course. And the last time I taught that course live was in 2007. And that's why I'm going to teach it again in 2019, God willing. I was going to do the parenting course the week after Easter. I'm going to do that in the fall when we do CBC University again. But on Wednesday nights, beginning the week after Easter, I'm going to teach my biblical finance course all over again because it's been 11 years since I've taught it and needs to be refreshed because thousands of people have watched it since then. And uh, God's principles haven't changed, but we need to upgrade the graphics and a few other things. So you might want to take that course But listen, couples, every time I teach that course, and I used to teach it once a year, but every time I teach that course, people will come up to me. They're in their 50s and their 60s, and they'll say, I wish I heard this when we were in our 20s or 30s. It's a requirement for anyone who's going to be married at Community Bible Church. They must take the course on biblical finance if they are going to be married here at Community Bible Church. Why? Because we want to steer them away from many of the problems. I meet couples in their 50s and 60s and even their early 70s, and they still have a mortgage. That's usually typically just poor planning. Uh, again, it would be hard fast, but as a general rule, that's just poor stewardship to be in your late 60s and 70s and to have a mortgage on your house. You know, but again, we don't understand what God says and we think we're smarter than God. And, and sometimes a husband says, well, don't, don't confuse me with the truth. I don't want to take that course. He's the one who's going to suffer for it. And that's sad, you know, so you encourage him to do what's right. Good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller who's waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogue. This is Anthony. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Doing great, Anthony. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing good. Doing good. Well, Dr. Brogan, before I ask a question, I can uh, understand what you're saying about your teaching about finance and all that stuff, and I'm so thankful that I came to the church 20-something years ago. Mm. 20-something years. It, meant, it means and it meant a whole lot to me. And uh, and I would tell the folks who listening to you, they need to do it. 
But also, they need to spell, you know, the little programs that we pull out at church when you be giving us our notes and stuff like that? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't use them anymore. I bring me a notebook and I copy it down. Because you can go back. Sometimes the little papers, you can lose them. But if yes. you've got a notebook, you don't lose that stuff. You can go back and visit it, you know what I mean? That's a good so idea, my, Anthony. Yeah. My question is, Pastor, it seems like Israel, Israel is, the, is the main focus of the news every time we turn on the TV. I just want to ask you a question about if someone decides to militarily attack Israel at this time, would that be an agony of defeat for not Israel, but for whoever attacks Israel? And would that, I know it's not going to change prophecy, but would that hurry up prophecy? Or, or would that be a part of prophecy? prophecy. Somebody's trying to attack Israel, and I'm going to hang up and listen. All right, great question. Uh, We do know, as we've been studying the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, in fact, this Sunday is global warming in Armageddon, and we'll just touch on Armageddon, but we'll be moving towards that as we work through Revelation chapter 16. It will take us, I think, at least three sessions to get through there, maybe four and then we'll look at it again when it comes up again. We've already looked at it briefly, and we'll put a composite of all the Armageddon teaching in the Scripture. So we do know at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the seven-year period, at the end of the Great Tribulation, at the end of the time of Jacob's distress or trouble, depending on your translation, there will be a world war against Israel. So the nations of the world will gather, and they will come against the people of Israel. So right off, the the fact that that is going to happen tells you that Israel is not going to be obliterated before that time. Uh, I'm planning a, a trip to Israel in September of 2019, and the question I often get is, is it safe? Well, this morning there are 300,000 tourists who are in Israel this very day. Uh, why are so many there? And they're breaking a record this year for the prior year and for the prior year and the prior year. And every year since 2000, and I think it's 10 or 11, they've broken a record in terms of the number of people who visit there because it is safe. It's one of the safest parts of the world to go to. How do I know that? I know it one theologically and biblically that it would be more likely for the United States to be nuked into non-existence than it would be for Israel, because Israel is God's gauge in measuring yards, so to speak, in which he will culminate uh, the human history or this age as we know it before we go into the millennial age and before we go into uh, the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven and will sit upon a new earth. So there's still a lot to be done. But no, if there was a war today, it could be prophetically significant. Uh, Here's one of the issues, as we do know, some think it will happen right at the beginning of the tribulation period. Some think it could happen even before the rapture of the church. It's the Ezekiel 38 Gog-Magog war. I take it that it will happen right after the man of peace comes, and then followed by him is bloodshed. Uh, I could be wrong. It doesn't change anything. We do know that there'll be wars and rumors of wars even in the first half of the tribulation because the four horsemen of the apocalypse, really that entire chapter when the sealed judgments are cracked one at a time, 
perfectly mimic the first half of Matthew chapter 24. Um, Now, there have been some wars that I think have had prophetic significance. We do know that God tells us that at the end of time, Jerusalem would be under Israeli control. And I say under their control and that the times of the Gentiles, which is the time of Gentile oppression, goes all the way through the seven-year period. And that's why there will be a war against Jerusalem. But the fact that the Jewish people have regathered the, um, you know, all of Jerusalem. There was a time, there was a wall, it's called the Western Wall. Today, we used to refer to it as the Wailing Wall. And the Wailing Wall was as close as a Jew could get to the Holy of Holies and the Temple Mount, but everything on the other side of that wall was East Jerusalem, and it was under Jordanian control. And the 67 War was a significant war because they were able to recapture the whole city. So now they have the whole city in their hands, and there's a lot of dispute and a lot of fighting even today in terms of words over the city of Jerusalem. And the Arab nations want half of Jerusalem as their capital, and they want to create a two-state solution, and they want Palestine to have as its capital East Jerusalem, and then they say the Jews can have West Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem isn't, isn't the Arabs' property. It's promised by God to the Jewish people. It's their city. It was stolen from them. But it is their city, and the fact that they have the whole city right now, and that it's a city of contention, and that it will be the city that will feature the final battle that Christ at his second coming will come to the Mount of Olives. He will split it in two. He will create a valley. We'll stand, God willing, um, on the Mount of Olives, and we will stand, and you will see the place where God tells us he is going to split the mountain in two. And the Jewish people are going to flee through a valley that Jesus is going to create as he uh, wraps up time and puts away Israel's enemies. The fact that Donald Trump made Jerusalem the capital, what did that do? Was it of prophetic significance? Yes and no. And that it was already there, I say make it the capital, put the embassy there and acknowledge that it was their capital. It was already their capital. But the fact that the United States said, we agree this is the capital of Israel, not just half of it, but all of Jerusalem. Again, what does it do? It made this more of a contentious issue where people are arguing and fighting over the right for the Jewish people to control the entire city. And that is of great prophetic significance in the sense that the city of Jerusalem is the city of contention, and the final day is right before the second coming of Christ. Now, again, nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. But when we see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming— which happens after the rapture, it just reminds you that God is setting the stage and the rapture of the church is that much closer. So we do know that there is going to be a coalition of uh, Arab nations that are going to go against Israel. In fact, the very nations are named. And if you listen to my uh, sermon on the war of Gog and Magog, 
uh, from Revelation where I address it. I go through some of the very cities and the very nations that, you know, God named, you know, way back in the book of Ezekiel, who lives, who's a, a, an exilic prophet. He lives during the time frame of Daniel, and he preaches during the time of the exile, when, if you remember, um, King Nebuchadnezzar came down and carried away the Jewish people, and they were off in Babylon. And, and that's the time frame in which this man writes, 600 years before Christ. And he names the very countries, the very countries that are going to oppose Israel. And now sometimes the names of a, a name of a country changes. There was once a place called Czechoslovakia. It no longer exists. It, and now it's been given a, the country's been split in two. There was a city once called um, Leningrad, and uh, it's St. Petersburg today. So sometimes the name of a place changes, but the identity of the very countries that Ezekiel the prophet names are clearly identifiable to us today. And the fact that the very nations around Israel that hate the Jewish people, uh, that still hate them, are prophesied to come against Israel. That is a great coming war called the War of Gog and Magog. And if those coalition of nations were to go to war next week against Israel, my, you know that that is like super close to the time of the second coming and to the time of the rapture. So again, nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. There's never been a prophecy ever since the history of the church began uh, that needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. Christ could have ascended into heaven and raptured the church a week later. And then all of the prophecies that lead up to the second coming would have then been fulfilled during the seven plus years that would follow. But the fact that we are seeing the stage set in our day our eyes ought to be wide open and we ought to be alert and ready and waiting and working for when Jesus comes. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, a caller a couple weeks ago, we didn't get to their question, but they'd like you to please explain Ephesians 4 verses 8 through 10 where he ascended on high but also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. All right, let me turn there. I've just flipped to Ephesians 4. When you think about the subject of spiritual gifts, then you want to um, think of Ephesians 4 as one of the central passages. There are four central passages, many passages in the New Testament that illustrate the subject of spiritual gifts, but four central passages. 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And when you come to Ephesians 4, it's a hinge verse in the book of Ephesians. When you think of Ephesians, you should think chapters 1 through 3, what we believe, chapters 4 through 6, how we behave. And so in 1 through 3, Paul deals with theological issues. He's giving us the biblical basis for why we should behave the way we behave. So when you come to 4.1, he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Remember, this is one of the what we call the prison epistles. Paul's under house arrest when he writes this. I implore you, he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. So now he's dealing with the believer's walk, with the believer's lifestyle. And one of the issues that he addresses is the fact there is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope if you're calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. 
So he's talking about the oneness that we share in the body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Um, By one baptism, of course, he's not referring to water baptism. He's referring to spirit baptism. Every time you see the word baptized in the Bible, it's not always in reference to water. For we have all been baptized by one spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there is spirit baptism and so forth. Um, So there's a unity in the body of Christ. But then he goes on to remind us, but there is a diversity in the body of Christ. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, there's salvation grace, but then there's what we also call grace gifts. And so when God gave you a spiritual gift, you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, you didn't merit it. He gave you that gift because you need to uniquely be placed in the body of Christ. He baptized you by the Spirit, which identified you into the body, but he also, on your spiritual birthday, gave you a spiritual gift that he wants you to use. Now, unfortunately, many Christians don't even know what the spiritual gifts are, and they confuse them with talents. And some, therefore, conclude, well, I'm not a gifted person. Well, what do you mean? I can't sing, or I'm not mechanically inclined. Well, Wonderful, but those aren't spiritual gifts. Those are talents. There's no spiritual gift of singing. It's not a talent. Neither is it a place. We say, well, he he has the gift of working with young people. There's no spiritual gift of working with young people any more than there's a spiritual gift of working with old people. Now, it might be that you have the gift of mercy that meets physical needs, and you steer it to very often to an age category that may benefit the most from that need, namely older adults, but certainly not exclusively. 20-year-olds get cancer and so forth. People get sick even at a young age. So even the place it's employed is not the gift itself. But there are grace gifts. There are spiritual gifts. There are 20 listed in the New Testament, 16, at least 16 that are being given today. And if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, you might want to go search the scriptures.org. I have a whole course on the subject of spiritual gifts, but I also wrote a test that might be a precursor to helping you discover your spiritual gift. Now, you might take the test and say, well, I didn't really shine in any area. Well, that usually is an indication that you haven't grown much spiritually. Now, you may have been a Christian 20 years, but you've remained a baby Christian for 20 years, so your spiritual gift will not shine. I was in China last month, and they were telling me, you know, the ratio, it's like one pastor in this one particular providence for every, you know, 12,000 Christians. They said, we just don't have enough pastors, and we have all these new Christians, but not enough pastors. Well, their challenge was, is they had multitudes of baby Christians that hadn't grown, and I and I told him, I said, look, if you hold a newborn in your arms, you don't know if they're mechanically inclined or musically inclined or uh, you don't know what their uh, abilities are, whether it's athletic or intellectual or, you know, God made us all different. But as that person begins to grow, you begin to see the way God designed that person for life. Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. And yet if a person remained a baby, you would never see that. And if a person remains a baby Christian, you would never see the gifts that are needed for someone to become a pastor. So it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all in all. And then it says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors, teachers, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. By the way, these are not offices. There is an office of an apostle. There is the office of prophet. But here he's speaking of gifts. There's a gift of apostleship. There's a gift of prophet. There's a gift of evangelism. There's a gift of pastor teacher. And that's actually one gift. Um, The connective word through here, and, 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 when you come to the last and, pastor and teachers, it's a different and in the Greek New Testament. Uh, Today, we might write it pastor slash teacher. That's a spiritual gift. There's also the gift of pastor, and there's the gift of teacher, but there's the gift of pastor teacher, and these gifts that are mentioned here are for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, and they're not exclusive gifts because these gifts are dependent on all the other gifts. So he speaks about how the whole body, in verse 16, is fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part that causes the growth of the building up of the body of itself in love. In 1 Corinthians, he illustrates that with the physical body. If the whole body were an eye, were the sense of smell be, and so forth, that every part of your physical body is essential for the operation of the whole body. And that's the theme here. He's, again, moved from what we believe to how we behave. He's speaking now of our walk. He's speaking of our unity. But within our unity, there's diversity. There's leadership gifts in the church. But what those leader gift, leadership gifts are dependent on that which every part of the body supplies. So a leadership gift can't work without the gift of, say, serving or the gift of administration. Those are critical gifts. But a pastor teacher can't function unless people are exercising, say, the gift of service. So grace was given. We all have grace given to us according to the measure that God the Holy Spirit decides four times over in the New Testament. It says that he gives gifts as he chooses, as he wills. So you don't determine your spiritual gift. God determines that for you. So the fact that someone has a leadership upfront, very visible gift does not make that person more important than some of the unseen gifts. And Paul, again, reminds us the same is true in the human body. There are some parts of the body that are very visible, but then there are parts that you don't see but are essential for the proper functioning of the body. So when Jesus ascended on high, remember he said, if I don't ascend to the Father, I'll not send you the Spirit. And when he sends us the Spirit in fulfillment of the Old Testament making this promise, Uh, he sends us gifts when the Spirit comes. So he sends on high. He led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. So he's using really here some uh, military metaphors where uh, a man, a general, is victorious, and he triumphs over the enemy, and then he comes back to his people bringing the spoils of war. And so Jesus is... Uh, sovereign. He is victorious over death in the grave and over sin. And because of that, he's able to give gifts to men. And so he ascended on high. And then there's a little debate in terms of what it means when, and by the way, the he ascended on high 
um, again, speaks not just of his resurrection, but the fact that he is overall, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning, he is ruling in the universe above, in the heavens above, but he descended also. And there's some debate as to what that would refer to. Some would put this together with First Peter, where in the book of Jude and Second Peter, where Christ went on a preaching mission between his death and resurrection. And they would argue that that's what is in view here. Others would take it more simply. It's dependent on how you take a genitive without getting into a lot of detail. There's three different genitives in the Greek New Testament and how you take the genitive. But maybe the simplest way to take it is that it's just a reference to the fact that Jesus, after he died, was buried in the tomb. But he showed his victory over death when he was raised from the dead on the third day. And so as a sovereign victor over death as seen in his resurrection and ultimately his ascension, he gives gifts to men. You are a gifted person if you are a born-again believer, and you should find out your spiritual gift, and that should be a focus area, not an exclusive area. Sometimes people use spiritual gifts as an excuse not to serve in a particular. I don't have the gift of evangelism, they say, so I don't have to share my faith. No, the gift of evangelism is certainly a leadership gift in the church that certain individuals are given, but we all have the responsibility of doing the work of an evangelist, just like there's the gift of mercy, but all are called to show mercy. Some also take Christ's descent as his removing Old Covenant believers from um, righteous Sheol or righteous Hades and carrying them up into heaven at that point. Because clearly we know that when an Old Covenant saint died, he went to righteous Sheol. Now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in heaven. Um, so some would also reference that potential truth as being brought out here. But the main point of the passage is that Christ is victorious as seen in his resurrection and ascension, and as a triumphant general over the universe. He gives gifts to his church, and he expects those gifts to be used and to be employed in the local church, in the local assembly. You may use them outside of the local assembly uh, in some other Christian ministry, but the principal place in which they are to be used, according to the New Testament, is in a local church. And that's why every Christian ought to be a member of a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting local assembly. And if you don't have one, I invite you to Community Bible Church this Sunday, and uh, we would love to, to have you. And don't forget about Grays. Yes, uh, this coming Sunday, we have December the 2nd at 5 p.m. in Grays, South Carolina. For people living in Varnville, Estill, Pineville, all those little towns, uh, even Ridgeland, Hampton, they're looking for a place to worship. We're going to have an interest-finding um, meeting this Sunday. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for all the details. I'll be there Sunday night at 5 o'clock.